Well, today on EV Brief Podcast, I'm joined by Shane Rattenbury, MLA, a leader of the Australian Capital Territory Greens Party and also the Attorney General and Minister for Climate Change and Sustainability, amongst other portfolios. And Minister, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. It is great to join you. Now, the ACT has uh, wholeheartedly embraced clean energy and a, a net zero target um, and is the first jurisdiction in Australia to be powered by 100% renewable energy, isn't it? Yes, we took a decision some years ago that we wanted to get to that goal of 100% renewable electricity by 2020. Uh, to do that, we went out and did a series of large reverse auctions, uh, purchasing large-scale wind and solar supplies, and we achieved that goal of 100% renewable electricity in 2020 on target. And what that's led to is a 40% reduction in our greenhouse gas emissions. But that then raises the interesting questions of what next, because that now means that 60% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from transport. And that is a growing area of emissions for us here in the ACT. Now you have a net zero emissions target um, by 2045, is that correct? That's part of, yeah. So transport is obviously one of the biggest uh, pillars in terms of moving forward in achieving this target. So um, what about things like energy storage as well? Um, where does that come into your plan? Uh, can you tell me a bit about the government's policies around a battery uh, network for, for the ACT? Yes, certainly. We're conscious that, of course, the whole energy supply system is changing rapidly. Uh, and we are trying to make sure that having moved ahead with the renewable electricity, we also contemplate what future energy needs we have. Uh, the other big source of emissions for us is gas. Natural gas use in the ACT, or fossil, it's a fossil fuel. Uh, it, it's a sort of significant source of emissions. That's around 22% or so of our emissions. So we've also got to transition out of fossil fuel gas use. And so things like batteries can play a really important role in that, in making sure that as we move to electrification, we've got a strong and stable grid, good backup supplies, uh, the provision of the ancillary services that batteries can do so well. And so we do see storage as an important part of uh, the future electricity supply and the distributed energy network in the ACT. Batteries placed at the neighbourhood level can help deal with issues of domestic solar penetration and the, the voltage problems that can come from that. So batteries are, we see them playing a number of roles and we also see batteries in vehicles being an important part of that story. Uh, we're working on a trial at the moment of using um, vehicle to grid batteries. We've got 50 Nissan Leafs or we're getting 50 Nissan Leafs and they'll be part of an exercise to look at what role essentially mobile batteries will play in the future energy system as well. That sounds really interesting. We'll come to transport shortly, but what, on your point of gas, while you bring it up, I think uh, I read that the uh, ACT uh, will have the first hospital in Australia that is uh, electric only. That's the new wing of the Canberra Hospital. Is that correct? Yeah, look, we've been working on thinking about where are the places the gas is being used and how can we start to make the transition. So the first thing we've done is actually uh, end the requirement for the rollout of gas to new suburbs. It used to be compulsory in the ACT. The next move is actually ban the rollout of gas to new suburbs. Uh, we then want to end gas for large infill developments, so new apartment blocks and the like. Uh, we, we have targeted building our first large commercial all-electric shopping centre uh, by 2023. And we've already built the first couple of gas-free schools. Uh, we are building a new wing to our hospital, which is the one you mentioned where traditionally a big gas backup turbine in the basement would have been the thing. Uh, but instead we've managed to make an all electric model and do that in a really cost-effective way. And yes, it's the first time it's been done in Australia, although I've just seen that in South Australia, 
they are now going to build an all-electric hospital as well. So I'm, I'm really pleased to see these things are starting to pick up and the momentum is building. That's great. I think South Australia's in competition with you because I read that they're saying technically the ACTs isn't the first because it's a, an extension. <laughs> well, I think that's probably right in the sense that it's not our whole hospital campus, but we are building a, a new $600 million emergency department and range of um, elective surgery suites and the like that go with it. So, yes, it's not the whole hospital at this stage, but... You know, for me, the important part with particularly the gas transition is that we do need to phase it out and we can do that in an orderly way. And the first part of that is not making the problem worse. So we need to stop rolling gas out and then we can start to think about removing gas from some of the current applications. But the first thing is to not make the problem any worse. So the giant elephant in the corner of the room is the federal government's announcement this week that they think it's a good idea to build a new gas plant in, uh, in northern New South Wales um, when it's pretty clear by all the numbers uh, that it is going to be a bit of a, a, a white elephant or a stranded asset in the future. So, I mean, how, how do we get the states and the federal government to, to move forward on this, especially when the states and territories are working very hard to provide jobs and provide a clean energy transition? Hmm. Look, I think there's a couple of points in there. One is that the gas-led recovery that the federal government is talking about is, I think, just the wrong policy direction. At a time when we must tackle a climate threat, we need to be moving out of fossil fuels as quickly as we can. The prospect of uh, commissioning more, natural, even if it's natural gas, uh, is simply taking us in the wrong direction. In terms of your question about the states and territories in the Commonwealth, I mean, we're in a very interesting position where, ideally, the states and territories in the Commonwealth would all be pulling in the same direction. But we have, in my view, seen a significant leadership vacuum from the Commonwealth in recent years, and in fact, worse, where they've been active promoters of fossil fuel development, whereas the states and territories have really been doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, the various states and territories have got various targets for both renewable energy penetration, uh, zero emission targets, uh, these sort of things. And so you sort of, it's both good news and bad news. The good news is while the federal government's going in the wrong direction, at least the states and territories are getting on with it. I think the bad news is that uh, there is a, a discord between the policy efforts, and that, of course, means that it's not as effective as it could be. And that's very disappointing. But what it does mean, if we get a more sympathetic federal government at some point in time who actually wants to get serious about climate change, as we've seen the change in the US, I think there's a lot of strong foundations there of what's being done at the grassroots level by states and territories, and also by a lot of local councils, actually. Mm, mm. Because that means, yeah, that the states, uh, territories and local government, they're ready to go, basically. So they just require um, a little bit of support um, and not a sort of total undermining of energy policy and uh, agencies like ARENA and things from, from the federal governments. But we won't get too much into that. Yeah. We could talk about that for hours. <laughs> we could. But I think the exciting news in that is you could ramp up very quickly if the federal government wanted to go in that direction as well, because there's a lot of good groundwork being done across the country. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the ACT, we're seeing a lot of your 100% um, renewables coming from, um, from renewables out of state, as well as CFDs, contracts for difference. Um, do you see um, uh, a swing in terms of, the up to, uh, in terms of rolling out more um, sort of solar and things like that in the ACT's borders as well in the coming years? Look, we certainly do. In terms of those large contracts, we don't have those resources within the territory quarters. We've got terrific wind just north of us at places like Cookwell and the like, uh, but it would be uneconomic to, and essentially impractical to build those large-scale developments. But there's certainly, we should, we need more solar penetration, both at residential level 
Uh, and I think there's a lot of large warehouse rooftops and the like where we could be harvesting a lot of renewable electricity. And so that's the job in the coming years. We're about to launch a large scale scheme to provide households with interest-free loans uh, and solar panels will be one of the products that's available under that. And so people can borrow up to $15,000 interest-free from the government uh, to do a range of energy efficiency and clean energy technologies in their homes. Fantastic, because I think, you know, behind the meter stuff is often um, ignored a little bit by governments. Um, they sort of allowed the, the free market to, to deal with that themselves. But with the cost of uh, storage and panels at the moment, people do need incentives. And we certainly saw in the 90s and 2000s, there was a massive uptake in solar when there were incentives in place, didn't we? So um, now that battery technology is at the stage where it can actually make a real impact to sort of small grids and, and the, the territory world, uh, more broadly, I think, um, yeah, it's good that you're getting behind that. You know, they're good points. I think in terms of just rooftop solar for households now, it's so cost effective that in, households get the payback in between four and six years for most people. I think that, you know, it can be a bit faster, but for most, but what we've identified for a lot of people are having the upfront capital is the problem. And so that's why we've gone down this path of interest-free loans, because it means that people can get the solar installed, start making the savings, and essentially use the savings to pay back the loan to the government. That's the model we're going for. And so really, you know, for me, a big part of the move to a clean energy future or a zero emissions future is the just transition side of it, of making sure that the whole community gets taken along. And while there are some costs, there's also lots of benefits, and we need to make sure that everybody in the community has the opportunity to access those benefits. And so a scheme like this can really open that up to people who might not have, you know, that spare five, $6,000 sitting around to be able to put into installing a solar system. I think that's a really good point because um, what's often lost in this debate is that, um, you know, energy security uh, at a household level is an issue of inequality, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. And we've seen in South Australia that they've been rolling out this batteries um, with, um, with a public housing program. Um, to give people mm. in sort of lower socio-income houses to actually have the ability to um, bring down their energy prices, not just listen to the talk of the federal government and actually contribute to a, a sort of small-scale grid. So sounds like the ACT has real potential in that regard too. I think the interesting question that, and I'm not a technical expert, but I do obviously follow this stuff a lot, is what the nature of local storage will be in the future? Will it be household scale? But will it be more neighbourhood scale or suburb scale? And what, where the economy is going to end up lying in terms of whether it's better to go down one path or the other? But then also what role these vehicle-to-grid batteries are going to play? Because it might be that your actual household scale batteries in your car rather than necessarily having a battery attached to the wall. We might have neighbourhood scale batteries and your car at home is your sort of battery combination. I think these are really interesting things that, frankly, people are still working out. 100% because, uh, you know, especially in major cities like Sydney and Melbourne, um, where you've got a lot of people who use um, public transport to go into the CBD, their, their EVs will be parked at home uh, most of the day. So if you've got a, a car there with a battery capacity that's five to eight times uh, a household battery, it makes total sense to use that to power, um, at least at, say, at a suburb level, uh, air conditioning and things for offices and, and stuff like that. So you, you, I think you're spot on. We're going to see a real transition in our expectations and how energy is managed. Um, mm, but while we're on transport, um, 
you have um, a new uh, some new policies regarding EVs uh, coming out next week, I believe. Um, also along the lines of interest-free loans and uh, stamp duty exemptions. Tell tell our listeners a bit about that. I think the first thing is if we go back a couple of years, we adopted a zero emission vehicle action plan in 2018. That was first and foremost about transitioning our own government fleet. Uh, we wanted to, I guess, both help create a more stable market so that the car companies would start bringing vehicles to Australia. We've not got the biggest fleet. We're a small government. We've only got around 600 vehicles, which compares to New South Wales and Queensland that have literally got thousands and thousands. But we made that commitment and it's been really effective in the sense that um, our fleet company now went out and sourced getting electric vehicles. Uh, We've been able to tweak the economics by going from a three-year lease to a four-year lease. It ameliorates the upfront costs. Our running costs are much lower for our vehicles compared to the petrol vehicles that they have replaced. So it's been quite cost-effective for us. And it means we've got a lot more electric vehicles going around the city in the government fleet, uh, which will soon come into the market as second-hand vehicles for Canberrans to buy at a more affordable price. So that was sort of our starting point. We now want to move into encouraging much more private uptake, and that goes to the incentives you were speaking about, where... Uh, Yes, from Monday, the 24th of May, we'll have two years of free registration for all new and second-hand electric vehicles if you're registering it for the first time. And we think that second-hand part of it's really important as well, again, back to that issue of lower-income households and accessibility. Uh, We are also, we have zero stamp duty for zero emission vehicles. And we will, again, as part of the loan scheme, bring in a $15,000 interest-free loan to help you purchase your electric vehicle. So all of these things are designed to, particularly at the moment, break down one of the key barriers, which is the additional upfront cost of EVs. Yeah, that's really fantastic. I actually had a lot of questions from people um, saying they they wanted to know about this policy and whether it would apply to second-hand vehicles. Uh, So basically, if someone is buying a a used EV from a dealer, um, they will then also qualify for the, the stamp duty exemption. Yes, and the two years of free rego. We felt that was really important because, you know, it is. We, there's an equity question here of making sure that people who are buying less expensive vehicles that can't afford a brand new EV can still access the benefits of electric vehicle ownership. And we've now got a community group here in Canberra who's organising to import second-hand EVs from Japan. And we want to encourage that sort of program as well because those people are buying, you know, second-hand Nissan Leafs and the like for... Now, that's a much more accessible price point than, you know, some of the other vehicles that are out there in the market, the Ionics, the Konas, even the MG. But what that means under your program, though, even, say, the new MG ZS SUV at $42,000 drive away, um, suddenly you're talking, you know, um, mid to late 20s for someone um, with the loan program. Um, That's quite an affordable vehicle that does... 250 kilometres range and has no emissions. That's a real game changer. Yes, I have to be um, a little bit upfront there and confess that I just bought my own MG ZS about eight weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. And I'm th- yeah, thank you. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. But it is, a, you know, it's even that's an exciting vehicle in the sense that it's entered at a price point that has been well below any other vehicle on the market. And I think we'll continue to see that trend in coming years. And all of these things are about making them much more everyday choices for Australian households. Yeah, and fleet transition is a big one as well. I mean, initially for the taxpayer, obviously, yes, there's a higher upfront cost, but um, obviously your numbers are demonstrating that running costs and overall costs to the government are a lot lower, um, you mentioned. 
seven, that's right. Yes, our vehicles, we've done a, a demonstration. We took two of the EVs in our fleet and compared it to two sort of comparable ICE vehicles. And the savings were $1,800 over 18 months comparison for the, that's how much the EVs were less on their running costs in terms of reduced servicing and reduced fuel costs. That's fantastic. And then the byproduct of that, as you mentioned as well, is that um, you then have, after two or three years, you have more EVs coming onto the second-hand vehicle market. Um, and while we're on cars, um, in March, uh, the ACT and Actu AGL opened the first public hydrogen filling station uh, in Australia. Mm. Um, and you have, I think, 20 Hyundai Nexos uh, on the ACT government fleet at the moment. Is that right? Yes, we do. They're the first 20 registered hydrogen vehicles in Australia. Um, this has been part of a long-term partnership between NEON, who is one of our renewable energy suppliers, uh, and Actu AGL, a local um, energy company, uh, and various research institutes. It's been a great partnership. And so the, the fueling station will be publicly accessible. Uh, well, it is publicly accessible. It's just no one else has got hydrogen vehicles at the moment. Uh, but as they start to arrive and people are able to access them, uh, but at the moment, we've got the 20 vehicles running around in our fleet. Uh, our public servants have started to drive them. And all the feedback so far has been very positive, as it was when we brought EVs into the fleet. We've had no complaints from the staff. And in fact, if anything, our biggest challenge has been people really want to get their hands on them because they're nice to drive. You know, they're lovely, quiet vehicles. All the things that EV drivers understand about owning an EV, our public service staff are getting to understand. And that's been an interesting part of the vehicle fleet transition is the educational role it's played as well. We've literally got hundreds of public servants experiencing EVs and also talking to some of their clients about them, our community nurses. They drive around all day going to visit people at their homes. And often, you know, they've told stories about, um, they've pulled up and the clients have said, oh, we didn't hear you arrive. And they say, well, it's because we're in the EV. And it starts a conversation. So there's a really interesting educational role in the fleet transition as well. And there's also the environmental and the, uh, the health role in the transition too, because you know, governments where possible should be advocating for um, better health, health outcomes for its citizens, shouldn't it? Did I take that bit for granted? That's just like, that's the reason you do it. There's just all these other benefits. Well, well yes, well. that's right, yeah. So if, if suddenly uh, EVs do make financial sense for, for a government, it seems silly to not start that transition. Um, I actually had a chance to drive the Nexo a few weeks ago and it, it is a really great car. It's a really interesting car. Um, but I think a lot of people have sort of said um, in discourse online that, you know, they believe that governments should be focusing on battery electric, electric vehicles and that due to certain inefficiencies in how hydrogen fuel cells work that, you know, they're not really viable um, as passenger vehicles. Um, so, so what's the purpose of trialling a hydrogen fleet with your government? Look, I think certainly when we set off on the project, there, the EV market wasn't as developed. And I, we were trying to make sure that we were not picking winners, that we kept our options open. And I think there is real value in the experimentation. Um, you know, I, the electric vehicle market, the BEV market has obviously taken off much quicker than the hydrogen market has. Although, you know, I talked to the Hyundai people and they say they sold 10,000 Nexos in, in Seoul last year. And so there's all of those driving around in Korea. Uh, so there is different theories on where it's gonna go. I suspect over time, you know, pure electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles will fill particular roles and hydrogen vehicles will fill other roles. I mean, we've just seen the Nexo distance record in Australia in the last few weeks where they knocked out nearly 900 Ks in the vehicle. Now that is a, you know, a lot of people in Australia are concerned about electric vehicles because of range issues, living in remote locations. And so 
I think we're going to see different applications for the different technologies over time. And I think that's where uh, Hyundai is coming from. The Nexo really is a bit of a rolling test bed for that technology as they start to move into uh, hydrogen fuel cell powered um, heavy transport and things like that. So obviously, mm. if, if as is happening in the ACT, you're actually creating green hydrogen to fuel um, these vehicles, then it possibly might make a lot of sense if you're trying to cover long distances um, without having long recharging times. Um, but mm. what, private EVs are only uh, part of the solution and obviously heavy vehicles account for sort of a disproportionate share of emissions um, in Australia. Do you think there could be any opportunities to incentivise the uptake of, say, electric trucks or, or vans um, registered in the ACT in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is, you know, this is the, the private vehicles and the, and the passenger sedans are obviously the low-hanging fruit, relatively speaking. Uh, the heavy vehicles are harder work from a technology point of view, to my understanding, but we are looking at projects. So having adopted this policy, we've now got our fire department. They've gone out and they're looking at a electric fire truck. Uh, we've got a partnership going with a European firm. This will be, I think, the first in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, we're looking now at garbage trucks, uh, small tippers. Uh, we're thinking about what's suitable for our rangers to go off into the national parks. So there's a range of work going on to look at the different vehicles. Uh, I think for us, you know, we don't have a massive heavy vehicle fleet in the ACT in the sense of long haul truckage and stuff. They're just not based here. Uh, buses will be a big one for us. Just, you know, normal urban buses and those kind of questions. So they're the areas we're focusing on is there's really sort of municipal function type vehicles uh, is because that's what we have. And so they're the sort of areas we're focused on. And uh, you mentioned buses, clean, reliable public transport is key to emissions reduction, uh, isn't it? And as well as congestion. So you're currently in the process of transitioning the Territory's bus fleet, is that right? We're just beginning now. We're, we're about to order a, a whole new supply of buses. We need about 80 at the moment, I think is the order number. One of my fellow ministers is running that process. But um, yes, we because there was uncertainty, we've actually put the tender out to save the the suppliers to the market, we need 80 buses, what can you do? Rather than go out and saying we want 80 buses like this or we want this or that, I think because there's a lot of innovation going at the moment, we, we ran a fairly open tender that just said, well, we need 80 buses and we want to cut our emissions. What can you bring forward to us? And that is out at the moment. So I'm going to be intrigued to see what comes back to us in terms of what people propose to supply. Right, right. And obviously you can't discuss um, the, the intricate details of the tender, but are you expecting um, Australian electric bus manufacturers to um, to show interest in, in, in what you've put out? I certainly expect so. And look, what I do know is there has been a lot of interest in that tender process. I was chatting to the responsible minister the other day and he said there's been a really a lot of expressions come forward. And so I think we're quite optimistic that we'll be able to never buy a diesel bus again. That's, that is actually our commitment. And one of the things we've said is we might lease some diesel buses if we need to, to just get us over a couple of year transition period, but we have committed to never buying another diesel bus again as part of pushing ourselves to find that next set of solutions. Yeah. Well, it's great to hear this is happening. I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, you can't just bin all the buses and buy battery vehicles, battery buses the next day. There's a procurement process, you know, things have to happen, things have to be built. Um, so it does take time, but it's great to hear that commitment. Yeah, as a committed environmentalist, I get frustrated sometimes by the fact that you can't do these things overnight. But I think what we've shown in the ACT is if you make the decisions, commit yourself to going down the path, set the goals, you can get there. You know, and that's where governments can play such an important leadership role. Yeah. 
what are some of the challenges around sort of transitioning a whole fleet structure um, when everything is you know set up for diesel buses, diesel emergency service vehicles, that sort of thing? Can you speak to, to a bit of that? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. And yeah, even with our own um, sedan changeover, one of the hardest parts of it has actually been getting the charging infrastructure in place, making sure we've got enough charging infrastructure rolled out that our public servants have confidence that the vehicles will run. Uh, and that they can get them charged when they need to and the like. Certainly for the big bus depots, it's getting it, it's, it gets down to really technical engineering questions like, do we have enough capability in the electricity network to supply the charging of 200 buses at a bus depot? Or do we actually need to upgrade the transformers and things like that? So there's all these sort of flow on questions that arise that do require some careful planning because we can't afford to buy a whole lot of electric buses and then not be able to charge them and have our public transport network grind to a halt. What sort of range were you, uh, were you seeing from the trial of electric buses? I know in Sydney, uh, they're actually performing really well um, and covering their routes no problems with, with range to spare. Did you, did you have uh, success in your trials in the ACT? I'm just trying to remember the data on that. We have had some good success. Uh, the very first bus we got, there were some issues with, but then the next generation, uh, they ran their routes comfortably. And, in Canberra, compared to Sydney, our buses do do relatively longer routes. The city's more spread out. And so there's been some local sort of work we've had to do there. But uh, no, the most recent examples have gone really well, as is the nature of these things. The tech's getting better. It, it's more capable of performing. So you mentioned um, charging infrastructure on uh, sort of ACT government fleet vehicles. Um, one thing that I just thought of then, um, what about um, charging infrastructure in new dwellings, in commercial buildings, residential apartments mm. and things? Have you got um, a bit of structure around sort of policy for helping um, builders, developers roll that out and encourage EV uptake? Because that's going to be key, isn't it? Giving people the peace of mind. Absolutely. And it's a really good point. Uh, for me, the key area that's a problem is multi-unit buildings. You know, if you're in a single attached dwelling with your own garage, you've got no problem. Uh, it's where you live in an apartment building and, you know, it's very expensive to retrofit the wiring through the basement, for example. You've got to get body corporate approval. And so we've actually got a policy position that's been moved to, I guess, legislation now that all new apartment buildings will be required to be built with the capability to charge in the parking areas. Now, we're just working on defining that, what that will be. Does it mean that you just have to make sure the conduit's rolled out so that someone can just drill into the wall and connect? Um, and so what does that look like? Um, I think there's some really interesting discussion as well to be had about what charging infrastructure we need. Because uh, there's also the question of public charging stations. And having had my EV for about eight or 10 weeks now, you know, I've not yet, yet used a public charger. I happen to have a, uh, a house with a, with a garage. And so I just roll up and charge my car at home overnight on a slow trickle. I do it once every three or four days with the mileage that I do. I don't drive heat large distances. And so that works perfectly well for me, but that's not everybody's circumstances. And I think we just need to get a bit of nuance into understanding what charging infrastructure we do actually need. And I think, you know, it actually, as, as you say, it's not necessary that, you know, every new dwelling has X number of charges there when it's completed. Um, you, you, need to, you need a bit of policy certainty for builders and developers uh, and that will then encourage the uptake and it will just allow them to know what the standards are and to then say, right, okay, the infrastructure's here, we need to make sure that the strata knows how this works for owners and then you can just go ahead. But um, if you don't have any, any policy certainty at all, it's kind of a bit of a free-for-all and a really confusing for, for uh, homeowners and, and renters, isn't it? 
It, yes, I think that's very true. And it certainly is one of the questions. I think there's also just the educational side of it. It doesn't mean we need a fast charger at every parking spot in an apartment building. You know, trickle charging will work perfectly well. You might want two or three fast chargers in a 200 apartment building for the desperate situations. And then just lots of ordinary power points and enough capability in your electric in your electrical network to make sure that if everybody charges at the same time it goes okay yes yeah now, has the ACD government set aside any money to support the rollout of fast charges uh, in the territory yes we will shortly release a tender to supply 50 more public charging stations across the ACT uh, because you know some of the feedback we have had is that you know for people who are tourists or just that emergency backup there is a sense of that range anxiety and the need to see public charging stations. Uh, what we're trying to map out at the moment is where to put them and have a think about what's the best strategy. Do we put 50 different locations or do we maybe have 25 locations with two at each one so you've got more confidence that if you roll up, there will be a charger available? Because, you know, one of the feedbacks we get from EV owners at the moment is you pull up to the charging station, but there's not always a free spot. And so these are the things we're trying to think through at the moment. And are we talking uh, all DC fast chargers or a combination of uh, technologies and, and speeds for, for different vehicles and needs? Uh, we are not down to that level of specification yet. Yeah. So no, look, certainly 50 sounds, sounds really fantastic. Yeah. Well, look... Um, yeah, for a city the size of Canberra, it'll make a real impact. Yeah. Uh, you know, even if it was, you know, focused around town centres and there was a bank of, you know, eight to 10 chargers um, to future-proof... Um, the, the uptake in, in the territory, I think that could be a good plan too. But um, look, uh, a final question for you, and it's a it's a personal one. Um, you've been you've been an environmental advocate uh, for most of your career. Um, so can I ask uh, just what it is that inspires you personally in your advocacy of, of clean energy policy? Oh, look, I guess I'm very motivated. I grew up as a child of the '80s to reveal my age a little bit. You know, some really important environmental discussions going on at that time around forests and protecting Antarctica. So I sort of grew up as a young environmentalist and then, you know, the climate change science became very clear and it is the biggest challenge we face. It's an incredibly complex problem. It affects every facet of our lives. And so we just have to put all of our energy into addressing that. And things like clean energy are, there are no brainer these days, you know, but it's taken a while to get to that point. I'm excited. I'm actually motivated by the fact that we are making progress. It's easy to be daunted by, how big the threat of climate change is. But I look around every single day and I see really exciting things that are happening that are moving us forward as well. And so I guess that motivates me. And obviously the opportunity of being in a role like I am at the moment to make a difference for my communities, you know, it's a real privilege to have that role. Great, well, Shane, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's lovely to chat and uh, best of luck with the uh, EV policy rollout next week. We'll be following with uh, great interest. Thanks very much. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks to Shane Rattenbury for joining us. And we'll follow with interest the progress of the ACT's progressive EV and zero emissions policies. Please subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform to ensure you don't miss an episode. And head over to evbrief.com to stay up to date with the latest EV news and reviews. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm Jonathan McFeet and you've been listening to EV Brief. 